Before we get started, I was, I was just mentioning, I don't know if you heard it, I had an interesting uh, encounter this week. And I was thinking about, as you probably do, when, when God has someone he wants you to talk to, you don't even realize how he's setting you up to find that person. So we have chickens. Unfortunately, we have six chickens. Hi, come on in. I said six chickens and I'm the rooster. <laughs> in comes the queen of the chickens. So my lovely wife, Rachel, asked me this week, could you go to Agway and get a, a bag of uh, layer pellets, food for the chickens? I said, well, sure. Not one of the great chores I have, but I'll go do it. So normally, you know, there's an Agway on 236, and we live right up here, so I would normally go to this Agway. But I had other errands to do, and I had forgotten, by the way, the day you asked me, so she didn't need to know, but I forgot. So I had to go the next day, because she went to a sister's house, so she wasn't home for me to observe me forgetting. So I said, oh, man, the next day, I got to go out again. And I went out to get other things, and I forgot about the pellets. So that's how important the chickens are to me. They don't give me eggs, so what do I care about feeding them? <laughs> but th they do? How many? Five a day. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't collect. Okay. Well, next time I'll have a little bit more respect for the chickens. They're earning their keep. They're paying rent. So anyway, as, as I believe the Lord would have it, because I'm forgetful even without the Lord's help. But... So the next day, I went to Dover to return some videos to Blockbuster, and I just remembered again, I got to go get the pellets. So there's an agway in Dover. You know where the split comes off of, I think it's Central Avenue? As you're going south toward Dover Point, and there's a split to the right there. It goes under, and then there's an agway by the apartment, the old mill there. So I go in there, and this is what happens. It's me and the guy in front of me already online, and the woman behind the counter. And I didn't realize it at the time, obviously, but the woman behind the counter, she and her husband owned that agway. Her husband was outside plowing uh, the, the, uh, the snow, and I came in, and I was behind the guy. It just happened she had NPR on the, the loudspeaker, the PA in the store, and he's, they were talking about the stimulus package. And the guy in front of me says something to the effect like, this is going to be a real, really bad thing. He was going on about it a little bit, and I said, I fully agree. And I said, it's starting to sound like Germany in 1939. Now, if anybody's familiar with the history of Germany in 1939, actually 1939 was the tipping point, when they got to the point of inflation, hyperinflation so badly that it cost just about a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread or a day's worth of food. Guess who came on the scene after that and was able to, quote unquote, solve the problems at least for a while? Hitler. Why do people look up to those people who, who, who want to come to power? When is the right time for anybody of that magnitude or that, of that much of a despotic nature coming to power? What really helps that person come to power is, is a crushing economic system where people will just align themselves to anybody. Sounds like Nimrod and his cities, doesn't it? Sounds like other cities throughout scripture and throughout history where people will coagulate in cities because that's where they will find their sustenance and, and, and eventually they will bow to one leader who becomes their religious and economic leader. And Hitler did bring them out of the doldrum. War certainly does do that. It does create economic increase. But you know the rest of the story. So anyway, so I had said that and the woman behind the counter was counting the change and she almost dropped it. It's like, what did I say here? And she says, what does that mean? That it's like, like 1939. She's a, she's a younger person. I'd say she's probably in her early 30s. And so the guy counted his change, and, and he left. And I spent about a half hour talking with her about scripture, about history, 
about Islam, about where we are today, about the rise and fall of governments. And I found out she is a Christian. But she didn't understand a lot of these things. And so I summarized it for her from Genesis to Revelation as far as the timeline. You know how we talk about how Babylon is, is a... Par Say again? What? <laughs> Let me think of a good response to that one. Because I had to get that chicken feed and get out of there. So, uh, yeah, that's actually a good question. But I gave her enough to pique her interest. So she, she lives in Raymond, New Hampshire, and she goes to a congregational church. She's been a member of that church all her life, and it just so happens that that church is one of these older churches, and it's, a, it's sort of a syndrome where these churches become so dead, I hate to say it, but the syndrome of a dead church is that they get very legalistic. She said, sermons have to be, everybody's clamoring about this, that sermons have to be an hour, and that you know they can't change the color of the carpet now, and we've, we've always done it this way, so we have to keep on doing it this way. And she said to me that she's a member of the deacon board. I don't know how they do things in this church, but that's what she told me. And she had just the week previous, which was last Sunday, they had a meeting, and she said that we need to get back to Scripture and teach from Scripture instead of wrangling over these things. So maybe God put me in front of her at the right time because she was so peaked. And she wanted to understand in these concepts. And all I had to say was, it's like Germany in 1939. So I walked out of there. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I almost did, except that I said, oh, yeah, I got to order something because other people came into the store. Yes, you're right. I am forgetful. But I did get the pellets. And more importantly, you never know when God is going to put you in front of somebody. Now, I could have gone to the Agway down here if I had a better memory. And I would have probably just bought the pellets and walked out. So, amen for God's intervention and, and all the time. You just walk away from those things and say, God, who am I that you always find a use for me, even though I'm not that good? I just tear up because it's, you just come away and the Holy Spirit makes it so clear that you've just been used for someone else's good. And, and told them the truth in the way that they needed to hear it at just that time and not... And the detail we have to go through. You have to put up with me all, every week. So I really appreciate that. So Genesis chapter 15. We left off last week. and We were talking about this covenant. And uh, you know how we had this little sidebar. Actually, okay, not so little a sidebar. About the importance of understanding the law of Israel versus the law under grace. And how Melchizedek was really the one who introduced both the law with tithing and also grace because he offered bread and wine and he was also a king and a priest, the king of Salem. And then I, we proved through the New Testament, without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Melchizedek, if he was not a pre-incarnate version of the word who became Jesus Christ, it's certainly Jesus Christ is of that lineage, or of not lineage, of that ilk. So we understand that. We needed to set that up because as we, as we move forward here, we're going we're gonna to have to make that division, especially as we see chapter 15 where Abram is promised to be the father of a nation. And yet, later on in chapter 17, he's, his name is changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. But we, and we'll be proving in the New Testament that the father of a nation, what nation is that? Israel. Israel. The father of many nations are, are, is everybody else who comes to faith in Jesus Christ through this new covenant, which we proved was really for the Jews themselves. So here we are talking about a covenant, and God now, remember he said, I promised I will give you this land. I, and so Abraham believes that. He also says that I'm going to be giving you an heir that, you know, by way of, Abraham, look at the stars. If you can indeed count them, that's how many 
your heir will be. And he was childless at this point. Plus, he was getting up his age, and his wife, Sarai, was, was barren. That's where we are right now. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. We're going to talk about the signing and sealing of a covenant, a contract. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. But Abram said, O oh, sovereign Lord, what can, I, what can you give me since I remain childish, and the only one will, who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So you're right away, Abram is just like Moses. Yeah, he's seen a problem with what God said, just like we do. So this is no different. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Now this, by the way, still wasn't good enough for Abram because he now has to help God, he thinks, getting sons from his own loins, if you will. So he's going to help him. And you know, probably most of you Christians who know the scripture know who that son of non-promise was, which was Ishmael. So he said, a son from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram, now this is a key verse here, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Right there, you know. It's just belief. But you also see right on the, right, this, this statement of being credited righteousness is right on the heels of Abram saying, um, I really don't believe you. And then he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land and take possession of it. I'm going to map some of those things. Um, actually, I can map it for you right now. Thanks to Jim again so much for these charts. Everybody can see it. It's not eye candy anymore. Like an eye chart, rather. It's eye candy, not an eye chart. Here is the, the traditional spot of Ur of the Chaldees. I personally believe it was down here. There, there are other reasons to say it may have been up here somewhere, but either way, it's still on the route. People always, even though all of this was desert, they usually migrated along a river because that's how they kept their sustenance. So we have the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers coming up this way. So he migrated up to Haran. You remember we mentioned Haran in, in, in uh, Scripture, in Genesis. And then he migrated across and finally went down to here, which is the land of Canaan. And then he moved on to On at some point. But we don't have to worry about that right there. The land of Canaan is going to be the land of promise. And that's, how, that's his migration path. So he says in, uh, in verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of earthy Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord, I really don't believe you. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, now here is what we need to focus on right now. He's asking, Lord, how do I know? How do I know that you're actually going to give me this land? Here's the, notice here the Lord just doesn't say, be quiet and just trust me. Basically, that's what he wants him to do is trust, but he's already been counted as righteous for faith, for trust. But here's the point. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, I mentioned that, because I had mentioned this briefly, this scenario here, I think last week or the week before. Birds of prey, there's a detail here that really is neither here nor there. As these carcasses are lying halved, the birds of prey are coming down to get their fill, which is a normal thing to do. But why mention that in Scripture? Oh, yes, I did mention it last week, because I made the, the analogy of ants in a picnic. Uh, what I meant, would I mention ants trying to eat my food at a picnic? They, they do anyway. 
The point is this. Everything in Scripture has a reason for being there. And that's why we'll never get to the bottom of understanding all of Scripture because we'll never have the ability in our lifetime before the Lord takes us home, any one of us, to understand all of this. But if you look at it, the birds of prey. In Scripture, birds of prey, or sometimes just the term birds, really mean demons. If you look especially at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the book of Daniel, he has a dream about a great tree, and it was a beautiful tree. It was a domain. It was a dominion. The symbol of a tree in Scripture typically means a domain of a kingdom. All the leaves and the branches being the cities and the holdings of this kingdom. And so the birds birds found nesting and shelter in this tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That's not a good thing. Not in that context. Because the tree was the domain of an evil empire, which Nebuchadnezzar was at that time the head of. That's where we get this from. The birds of prey, because they, Satan, knows that something important is about to happen. And he is going to try to stop it. Remember, it's a game of chess. There is God's move, and then there's Satan's counter move. And remember, in the game of chess, as in any other game, you really cannot make a move until your opponent makes their move, and then you can calculate. But if you don't know their move, like anybody ever played Battleship? You don't know the other person's move, so you just got to hit or miss. And it's a fun game, but it's not in reality true. But remember a game called Stratego? That was a good game because that was strategy. You saw the moves and you made the counter moves and all of those things. That's the point here. In verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. I personally believe that just means the power of the Lord was, was sort of making him uneasy it was also showing him the importance. Like, you notice how when the, when the presence of God came upon Israel, it wasn't just a happy time. It was dread. I believe that the same thing here is that Abram is being powerfully made to know, even in his sleep, that God is really upon him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers. Now, here's the reciting of the contract. You know how we draw a contract up and it's all parties and what we agree that everyone will do has to be detailed in a contract. Here are the details. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers uh, in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves uh, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I want you to remember some of this. The sin of the Amorites. We're going to talk about the Amorites because it's very important we understand who they are and why God has to wait for their sin to come to full measure. Also, another thing I want you to think of, how many years are they going to be before they get into this land and take possession of it? Four hundred. God just gave Satan an awful lot of information here. And what is Satan going to do? He's going to develop his counter move, and he's got 400-year head start. Do you think God's not going to be aware of this? God is very aware of it. So this is where we start getting into detail. The scriptures are, among other things, a detail of the wrangling, the wrestling between God and Satan. And that's why, as a matter of fact, Rachel and I, we, you notice how I say it a lot, Rachel and I discuss this. It's not discussed in the class. I don't discuss what I'm going to teach with her. Not that it's a secret, I just don't do it because I'm up early on a Sunday morning when she's still sleeping and I'm down there studying and doing this. When I say we discuss it, we talk about scripture and history and all of these things during the week. So when I say we discuss it, that sometimes gives me an idea to either put something in or color my description of something or make something um, more well known and bring it out. That's all I'm saying here. 
It's very important to understand that. That he's got a 400-year head start. And we have to understand who these Amorites are. And, and he's also saying that they have to reach their full measure. Now, when the sun had, had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, this is verse 17, with a blazing torch appeared. I want you to think of this, those who understand, before we even get to Israel, how did God make his appearance during, during, the, during the day when he was protecting those people in the desert by a blazing torch? I mean at night, sorry, not at day. At, at night, it was a blazing torch. When God makes his presence known, there's something that's typically like this. For Israel, anyway. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now remember, Abram, Abraham, is still asleep. On that day, on that day, while this blazing, I want you to imagine this. We have these animals that were cut in half, and the halves are laying side, you know, across from each other. So you have a heifer and a goat and a ram, and then you have the, the birds, right, which aren't cut in half, but they're there. And there is a path between those halves. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites. We're going to talk about those people later. The Amorites, we're going to talk about them too. The Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That land encompasses a lot of this area right here. And you can actually, well, that's a, that's a more of a, of a higher overview map. Suffice it to say, that land is a lot more than Israel is, is comprised of today. But I want you to, want you to think of something. G the Lord is saying this, Abram is asleep, so who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Well, maybe Abram is hearing him in his sleep. We don't know that. But we do know that he's talking to the Trinity, to the other members of the Trinity, and to all the angels that are around who are hearing this. He's talking to some body of people. And the key here is he's reciting the terms of the covenant as the blazing fire pot is coming through the pieces. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, with, the, with the having and everything, it's also called the blood covenant. And usually when you, when before when they have blood covenants, two people pass through it, and then you have to keep the covenant. And if you don't keep that covenant, you're basically saying, what happened here, you can do with me. That's right. So God is the only one who went through it. Abraham didn't go through it at all. That's right. So God is the only one being accountable for his promise. That's right. Absolutely. And that, that covenant keep, it, or this type of covenant is called barath which means to cut a covenant, and it's exactly right. It's actually a figure eight, because they go around all of the pieces, and then they come back. That's how I've heard it being done, but that's exactly for the purpose that Rick said. It's a covenant, it's a signed covenant, that if either one of us breaks that covenant, may we be as these animals. Shouldn't we, in, as in modern day, I mean, why do we have contracts? So that if one party breaches the contract, there's, a, there's at least a complete understanding that both parties signed, in this case walkthrough, so that if one breaches the contract, the other has a choice. They bring it to the law, they bring it for, to mediation, and they say, this person needs to do this to get back into the contract, or the contract's null and void, and that decision has to be made. But as Rick just said, God is not going to allow anybody to break that contract. And he is the only one who can make a contract and have a strong enough will and character and the power to keep a bargain, not only for himself, but for anybody else. 
And that's one of the major things I want you and I to understand as Christians. There is no way that you could lose your salvation. There is no way. Let me repeat that one more time. There is no way, and we're going to prove that from Scripture right now. Would you say that you're under a covenant? What was your end of the bargain? Did you know, didn't Jesus say, count the cost before you enter this covenant? Yes. Because when you enter a covenant, you are supposed to count the cost you, because you become part and parcel of the contract. You have a part to play, and the other party has a part to play. But once you sign that contract, Jesus Christ himself walked through those pieces. This way, you never have to say, I can't keep this covenant, and by rights, under the covenant of type of Barath, may I be killed and slaughtered and sacrificed, because he's the one who did all of that. He sacrificed himself on our behalf because we couldn't keep that covenant. Do you see? Are you convinced of that as a Christian? You have to be, because Satan loves to put doubt in Christians. However, and it says clearly in Scripture, just because you and I are assured of eternal life with God, does that mean that we have license to do whatever the heck we want? God forbid. Because we know that at the end of the day, at the end of our life, and actually it's going to be during the seven-year tribulation when we're up there, whether you die first or you're raptured, you're going to be up there. What did Pastor Stan say about that? We're going to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb at that time. And rewards will be handed out. John chapter 6. I'm going to read you something from John chapter 14, verse 6, but you turn to John chapter 6 and verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can come to salvation through him unless they enter a covenant which includes Jesus Christ as the other party in that covenant. There are people who go to Buddha, Allah, they go to all sorts of people and make covenants with them. And you see how disastrous those covenants are. Because at least one of those parties doesn't even exist, except maybe as Satan, which of course is hiding himself, so he's forging somebody else's signature on that covenant. And it, and it ends up in the destruction of the other party in that covenant. But this is the only covenant that can be entered. John chapter 6, verse 35 through 40. Verses 35 through 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me or agrees willingly to enter into this contract with me, those are my words, but this is what I'm saying, will maybe go hungry, will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive out. Do you believe that? Is Jesus, when he says, I have told you this, and you have seen me, and you still not believe, you don't believe. I mean, you don't see him, but you do believe. Does anybody think that that's altered for those who haven't seen Jesus Christ physically? No. And it's not altered for you and me. I want to give you the most important thing you can have, which is faith. Faith that you could never be letting go of. And Jesus says it right here. I will never drive you away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose a few. I shall lose Mike Mandola, if he's not a good boy. What if Mike Mandola commits suicide? Does it say anything here in the contract? What if Mike Mandola murders somebody else? Does he say it here in the contract? What if Mike Mandola cheats on his wife? 
or, or abandons his children. Does it say anything here? Now, if I do those things, am I going to be in trouble? Yes. And I'll also cause major problems and, and hurt for other people, which I will be held accountable for. But that does not mean I will not be here for, or with God for eternity. doesn't mean it for you either. For my Father's will in verse 40 is that everyone who looks, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have a term of possession. You shall own eternal life. Doesn't He say that you have eternal life now? Doesn't He? Doesn't He say it in Scripture? Does anybody not know that? It's true. It's true. And He's saying it right here. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son of Man and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will... Maybe. Did you hear maybe in that? No. I will raise him up at the last day. Any question about your salvation? Any question about my salvation? And the only thing that we cannot judge is the state of somebody's salvation. Because that is between them and God. But don't make the mistake of saying, I can't judge nothing. Because you are here to learn how to judge rightly, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And if you see something wrong, you are to judge that. If you see something wrong in somebody's life, you are to judge that. If you see something good in somebody's life, you are to commend them. Because you know the reference standard. You have the ruler. You are owned by the ruler. But the only thing, so don't be tricked into the thing, because Satan loves an ineffective Christian, one of the most ineffective Christians. I can't judge. Nobody judge me, and I can't judge. That's baloney. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I understand what you're saying, but what I don't understand is if a Christian willfully turns their back on God, just cuts them out of their life completely, enters into a life of sin, the Word says that there are certain things that they're not going to be in That's not really says that. It doesn't say that. No hormongers, the... We're all whoremongers and murderers, every single one of us. The only so difference is, that's right, that's right. But if you leave the Lord, and you're not serving Him, and you totally go into a life of sin, yeah. then how can you go to heaven? Well, let me ask you, let's go back to Abraham's covenant. Is who walked through and made that contract, ratified that contract out of the two parties? Who walked through your contract or my contract with Jesus Christ? Did you sacrifice yourself for anything? I didn't. Did he? Is it only good to a certain point? Absolutely. Let me show you. We're going to go there right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I know because I was taught, Sharon, I want you to understand. I'm being very adamant about it because I thought the same thing for a long time. But that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And I can tell you that, not to say it because you believe that it's a lie, because I believed it. But I have proof here because of going through what a covenant... That's why God gave us the detail. That's why He is the only one who can ratify a covenant between the two parties. There is nothing you can do. Turn to chapter... Uh, Corinthians verse... Uh, chapter 1... Sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm getting excited now because I, I, this is an important point. I'm excited anyway, but this is... An, I'm glad you brought this up because this is a very important point. This touches the heart of many Christians who have a fear that they cannot get into heaven at some point. You know, that doesn't make us, if we have that fear, any better than a Muslim. I mean, not in our beliefs, but you know that a Muslim never knows if they're going to be with Allah in heaven until after they die. 
What does that, what does that tell you? That tells you that they have to keep racking up good works to make sure they get into heaven, and they never know. The only way in some sects, and actually the major population of Muslims belong to the sects that teach, the only way you can know for sure that you will be in heaven with Allah is if you kill Jews or you kill unbelievers in the service of Allah. A terrorist is guaranteed in their point of view to go to heaven. Did you know that children are taught in the Palestinian territories and in other Arab countries? but most prominently in Palestinian territories, that you, when you die, you will go to Allah if you die as a terrorist, the jihada, shihada, right? The die and shihad. And so they're told that when you die, before you do this deed, you can talk to Allah and have a drag come with you of friends, of certain uncles, relatives, aunts. So guess what happens? When a child be says and makes the announcement that they're going to be a shihad, and they're going to die in a, in a terrorist act, guess who starts catering to these little kids, these little brats? The aunts and the uncles and the friends, because they want to know for sure that they're going to go see Allah. So the only way, if they don't become a terrorist, then they better hang on the coattails of somebody who is, and they have to find favor with that person. Other than that, you never know. Do you as a Christian ever want to think that you will never go to heaven, that there's something that's going to stop you? You've got to think of that. And today, with the deception that's coming very soon, you and I better be most aware that this is a one-man covenant, not one man, one God covenant, one being covenant, just like Abraham's covenant. And that's why I'm covering this. So you actually asked the question at the right time. Chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, Paul makes a point here about what's going to happen to the Christian. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, the day that we're with the Lord and a judgment for us comes. By the way, we will have judgment. Not here, but at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. The Bema seat in Roman times was the place where the winner of a race would get his or her reward. That was the Bema seat. The Bema, that they would judge how well they did against the other competitors or actually against themselves, against the, the game, against how they did as, as the game goes. And that's where they would get their reward. So his work will be shown for what it is because in the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and with fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. Now, if what he has built has burnt up, which includes the total burning up would be someone totally rejecting Jesus Christ after they've tasted him, right? Having, their set, having set their hand to the plow and, and then turning back. Let's see what it says about that. And fire will test the quality of each member. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, but himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Does that hit home? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? It's got to make sense. You may be very, very sad to find out when we're up there at the Bema seat that you thought you were going to get some kind of great reward and for eternity you're going to have very little comparative to other Christians or other, you know, whatever God's going to do from eternity on out. If you rejected Jesus Christ, you may have very little. You probably will have very little. Because you see, you haven't in reality rejected Him. If you believe, the Holy Spirit confirms that covenant, correct? What, remember Jesus asked His disciples, who do men say I am? Right? Anybody remember that in Scripture? What, did, who, what was the answers? Some say you're Elijah the prophet. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. But then he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And what was Peter's response? Right. Why, didn't all of, why, don't other, why don't other people believe that? And what did Jesus say to Peter when he said that response? 
He said, you only know it because it was given to you to know by the Holy Spirit, by God. To answer your question, which is what I firmly see in Scripture here, but this and also that example, and also the example with the covenant of Abraham being God, God being the only one that can walk through that covenant. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord enough to fully and truly accept him as your personal Savior and sacrifice, you could never turn your back on that because you know it. It's like I walk around and I know my name is Mike Mandola and I know I'm married to Rachel and I have these three kids. Now, I can turn my back on them and totally deny that I've ever had children and a wife. Don't we see in the news people who do that? They go start another life with some other woman and they, they, never, they never admit that they, they, they throw away their wedding ring. But does in reality, do they not remember that they actually do have a wife? If you have been bound to Jesus Christ in reality, there is no way you could turn your back on him in reality and say, I reject it because it's a myth. Because you can't do that. So what you're just doing is sinning beyond belief and God may take you home prematurely to bring you up there so you don't cause any more damage. Does, does that, think about that, Sharon. Think about it. Because I used to hear and I used to believe that if someone caused, committed suicide that they're going to hell, even if they're a Christian. No! No! We're not under the law. That's right. And this is a single covenant. This is a single covenant. God is the one, Jesus Christ in the new covenant, bears all of the brunt of supporting this contract. He has to. Just like in Abraham's time, Abraham was not allowed to be part of that covenant. Because if he was, and he could break it, who do you think Satan is going to target? Do you think Satan is not strong enough to take a human being like Abram and make him do something that would, that would negate the promise through Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel? That would mean that if that were possible, Messiah could not come and you and I wouldn't be here. Do you think God's going to let that happen? Do you think God is going to allow someone, when he says, just read it to you in Scripture, someone comes to me, they will, I will in no way drive them out. I will in no way, I, ha I will not lose a single one. Why would that apply in any instance at all? If you can answer that, then you've got something that I don't know because Scripture doesn't say it. Okay, so I know because I believe that at one point. I just want to be, I, this is the most important thing. And I'm glad we touched upon this a lot. You've got to understand your salvation is sealed. If you don't, Satan will use it against you. Trust me, he will. Because if you're unsure, that is going to incapacitate you at some point as a Christian. It will. It will. It will. Because you will then try. I will never. You'll spend more try, time, or not more time, but you'll think more than you ought and waste time worrying about how I'm going to not commit the unpardonable sin and stay Jesus Christ than just being free, knowing you're always tethered to the mothership, to Jesus Christ, to be free to move about, to do the things you're supposed to do. How do I know? Because I did those things. I was so worried about the law that I was stepping on my own feet trying to do what God wanted me to do because I had to earn my salvation. Well, in this instance, it's trying to keep salvation doesn't matter. Either one is, is null and void. Yeah, it's all done. These covenants, oh boy, we're over time. They're totally unconditional, but we're going to have to go next week. <laughs> I, was very, I was very animated about that, and I, I'm glad you brought it up, Shine. I hope I didn't embarrass you at all. I no, hope no, not. No. I just, you know, That's right. 
and and that's good because I had the same ones. As a matter of fact, we were just talking about this. But I don't know if you were sitting here yet. But you were saying what? What's the most important thing you're finding right now? Worldview is changing. Her point of view of what scripture means is changing. And when, it's, when we're talking about worldview, we're not just talking about the view of the world, we're talking about our place in it. How we map into everything that we know in the world and how we map into everything we know and are and told we are in scripture. Foundational, fundamental. And the more you understand your salvation is sealed, the more you trust Jesus Christ and the more faith you have, then the better off you are going to be. Because Jesus Christ did himself say, I will in no way find pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. For us, losing faith, 100% assurance is shrinking back. So that's it for today. We are going to pick up in, in some good stuff next week, and we're actually going to get to the Amorites next week. So have a good week, everybody. <laughs>